Someone out of the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, order my brother to give me a fair share of the family inheritance. Jesus replied, Mister, what makes you think it's any of my business to be the judge or mediator for you? Speaking to the people, he went on, Take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Then Jesus told them the story. The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? The barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then the rich farmer said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather in all my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and now you can retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. Just then God showed up and said, fool, tonight you die and your barn, your barn full of goods who gets it? That's what happens, Jesus says, or says Jesus, when you fill your barn with self and not rich toward God. Appreciate it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. That's where we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning. Um, if, for those new with us, we've, uh, we've been following Jesus through, uh, in Luke's gospel particularly, through this kind of section where he is leaving Galilee, which is kind of northern Israel. Um, It's a place where all of his disciples were from. It's a place where he was from. It's a place that, um, where religion ran deep, um, where there was a deep um, um, sense of tradition and and participation within uh, the Jewish community, in the synagogues. Um, It was a place where there was a lot of of um, expectation for God to work and to move. There was a lot of expectation of what it looked like to be a part of God's kingdom, to be ready for God, um, to be able to interact with God. There were professionals kind of all around the culture there that was giving insight into what it looked like um, to be a God follower. Some of them were called Pharisees, some of them called lawyers, some called scribes, um, all these kind of people. This was kind of the region that Jesus grew up in and did most of his ministry in. But Jesus' ministry ends in Jerusalem, and he's, he's, he goes to Jerusalem a couple times throughout his life, but at the end of his life, this is where he's going to die. And Jerusalem is where he goes to, um, to stand before the leadership of, of, of the Jewish community, to be crucified, um, to be buried, and to rise again. But kind of in between that, that land, the northern part of Israel, Galilee, southern part of Jerusalem, is a land called Samaria. And Samaria is a place that is um, not anti-religious or non-religious. It's actually a place that has a lot of religious history, a lot of familiarity with even Jewish history. But it's kind of more along parallel lines rather than like actually this like synonymous religion, right? They, they kind of knew Yahweh, but, but Yahweh not necessarily in Jerusalem in the temple, but Yahweh kind of mixed in with some of the other religions and ideas of God uh, that, were, that have kind of filled the region throughout the years. Um, there are people who, the, for a Jewish person, um, they were kind of considered the, the least pure of heart and clean um, because they had not just, they weren't just non-believers, quote unquote, right? They were actually ones who believed in Yahweh and, and believed in God to some degree, to various degrees, but didn't really follow their way, the Jewish way of getting to know God. And so most Jews, instead of going straight down from Galilee to Jerusalem, would go all the way around Samaria. They would avoid it completely for ritualistic reasons, for uh, prejudice reasons, for all these different things, right? They would just kind of avoid the secular life, the semi-secular life, the semi-secular, semi-religious life because they wanted to stay pure in heart. Like we read in the Psalm, like Lily read for us. They wanted to be ones who, whose hearts were pure, whose hands were clean so they could enter into the presence of God. 
But Jesus, instead of going around Samaria, in the way Luke tells his story, for, from chap, the end of chapter 9 to the, to the end of chapter 19, actually just kind of meanders his way through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. Doesn't just take a direct path, just try to scoot his way through it. Actually, like, goes around in circles in this land to teach his disciples what it looks like to actually live as God's people in a place that was somewhat tangential to the place that was full of God's people. To help his disciples and um, know how to interact with those who were from Galilee and Jerusalem who would be professional speakers of God, how to deal with them and interact with them, to be ones who would have to deal with their own hearts as being ones who wanted to be clean and pure like them, how they were to deal with life in a land in Samaria, how God himself was actually dealing with the Samaritans, those who seemed like they were somewhat interested in God but tangential to the Jewish faith, kind of outsiders a little bit. All this is happening within these chapters. That's what we're kind of looking at is we actually kind of feel like to some extent we live in Samaria. Our homes to maybe to a degree, maybe even this place could be Galilee or Jerusalem, a place where we kind of come in and we're all on the same page and we kind of feel like we kind of know um, that we're after God together. But as soon as we walk out the door, we walk into a land that it's not anti-God or unfamiliar with Christianity or the way of Jesus. It just doesn't look like what we think it should or how we think it should be, right? That we run into this kind of on a daily basis. So we're trying to figure out how do we speak to God? How do we speak of God? How does God speak to us in the midst of our little journey through, through Samaria that is life, right? And so last week, we, uh, we, um, we saw that one of the things Jesus does in the land of Samaria is he, um, he deposes those who out of conviction or vocation are professional speakers of God. And, and he does so out of grief. It's not out of like a spite. Like we, we see earlier in the, the, the uh, Gospel of Luke that Jesus is grieved that, they, that these people had kind of turned down what God had expected for them, how God had actually designed and created them to be ones who know him and share him with others, and how they've kind of lost out on what God intended for them. But at the same time, Jesus comes and he says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you lawyers. Woe to you is a deposing term. It's a grief-filled term of deposing. He takes them out of their position of authority. And he says, listen, you're not the ones that really show people who God is. You don't show people who God is, not because you don't know the right facts. The, the lawyers knew. They had the, the right knowledge. The, the Pharisees had the right conviction to live fully and rightly, to give themselves fully and wholly to a, a way of living. But they missed out because their heart wasn't with God. Their heart was after other things, after what they could get from God, after what they could get from others. They, they like the lawyers, they were comfortable giving advice and counsel, but had no desire to let the, the, the advice and counsel impact them. They had no desire to share the burdens with other people. They, like, they were the opposite of the song that we sang a minute ago. Like, they decided they didn't want humility, right? Like, they wanted others to be humble, but didn't want to humble themselves. And so Jesus deposes them, right? He, 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 and he, he removes them kind of from their position of influence within the community that, God, that Jesus is speaking to, the disciples, the Jewish people, the Samaritans. But, you know, that kind of leaves a void, right? Like what happens when the people that you've looked to your entire life or who you think culturally you're supposed to look to to know God are all of a sudden deposed of that responsibility, authority? Like where do you look? Last week we ended on like we're supposed to look to Jesus, but that might not be intuitive, right? 
Like we, may, we, we tend to when we depose those who have spoken in authority of us. And again, like Jesus isn't condemning everybody in authority, but specifically those who out, whose hearts don't align with the way, what, they, what they say. And when he does that, like we, if you're just a normal human, right, we would feel like, okay, so where do we go now? What do we do now? Where do we look to now? And in some sense, what we have in chapter 12 is Jesus answering that question for us and giving us an example of how Jesus, looking to Jesus, is going to be a little bit different. Jesus warns in the beginning of chapter 12 that direct connection with God. So if you remove the authorities that keep you, that kind of speak for God to you, there's an assumption that you're going to be able to speak to God somewhat directly. Right? You're removing that kind of barrier. They're keeping you from the kingdom of God. These people who have kind of spoken of God in ways that maybe don't quite align with who God is and how he works. And so now Jesus assumes that you're going to actually get to have communion with God yourself, which is kind of a scary thing to a little bit, right? Especially for a first century person whose idea of God is wrapped up in temples and rituals and worship, right? God is a little bit scary and intimidating. But so are those who've kind of controlled that, right? Who've kind of had control over it. But Jesus says that, listen, if you're going to have direct communion, communication with God, communion with him, what is spoken in the dark of our hearts and minds will be heard in the light of God's presence. This is a reality of those who, out of conviction and vocation, spoke of God. But it's also true for those of us that are going to now live in the presence of God without such authority, or at least that kind of authority. Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 3, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What have you said in the dark, in the dark of your quiet in your room, in the dark of your soul, in the dark of your mind, in the dark of your own house? It's going to be seen in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. That's a little intimidating, right, if we're honest? I mean, how many of us want all of our internal things exposed, right? That's what Jesus has already said he was going to do to the Pharisees, right? He's showing us through, the, through his deposing in chapter 11, he's kind of exposed the heart of those who have said that they're going to speak to God and speak of God to us. And so the same thing is going to be assumed for us, that we're going to be exposed in the presence of God. That what is said in the dark, what's spoken in the dark is heard in the light, right? And it's okay if you're a little bit nervous at that. That's normal. That's normal being, being a normal human. But the motives of our hearts, even the actions towards God are going to be revealed. Like when we get to be people who live in the presence of God, things are going to come out and be seen. We're going to be seen for who we are. We're going to be seen for what motivates us, even our actions towards God. But Jesus says, we don't need to be intimidated by such revelation. While it's true that God's authority and power are greater than the religious leaders who use their position and power, for their benefit and to the detriment of others, like we saw last week. Like there's a real sense of those who, um, who are listening to Jesus when he deposes these leaders. They're, they're a little bit worried. They're like, okay, hold on. But they controlled interaction with God. They controlled how we became clean and unclean, pure and fit to be able to interact with God. But now you've removed that. And so like, so what do we do? Like now, like to some extent, like how do we actually live? Because listen, they kind of controlled life for us. And so Jesus says, well, I know, you've, I know like, that you've historically feared them. And listen, God's so much more powerful than them. You should fear him. But remember, we've talked about fear of God before, right? It's not a, a trembling of a, of a scared, like, like, oh my goodness, God's going to punish me. Oh my goodness, if I don't get this right, God's going to somehow deny me. 
The idea of fear of God is that you're so enamored in awe of who he is, in his fullness, his power and his might, absolutely, but also his graciousness and goodness, that it compels you to a life of awe and obedience, compels you to a life of, of affection because you receive so much affection in the presence of who he truly is. And that's what Jesus says in verse, verses eight through 10. He says, everyone who, uh, I'm sorry, verses six and seven. He says, are not sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Listen, the things that, that, and we kind of read sparrows and just, it's like, okay, birds, generally birds are worthless. But this is like the base peace offering for the people, right? This is what, what the poorest people gave in order to make themselves pure before God. They would buy a couple sparrows, buy a couple pigeons, a couple birds for two pennies that would allow them to make the sacrifice necessary to be able to enter the God's presence. He's like, listen, the very base thing is super cheap, super easy. But yet God knows even what a sacrifice, even the tiniest little sacrifice for what it looks like to be in his presence, to make you clean and pure and allow you to be in his presence. He hasn't forgotten one of them. But not only does, does, does God see the very, very smallest, most forgotten, easiest accessible thing, he also knows the hairs on your head. He's got them all numbered. He knows you super intimately. Like even if you were at the, even if you were the least valuable thing, he knows you. And not only does he know you, like generally know you, like, hey, God knows me. God, God knows all of us. He's omniscient and all that stuff. But he knows you, you. He knows your hairs, hairs that only you have and hairs that are counted and he knows how many fall out. Right? I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? Like so that's pretty intimate. You don't even know how many hairs you have. He knows you more than better than you know yourself. How amazing is that, right? Even if you thought you were worthless, you're completely known. Even if you think you know yourself super well, God knows you better than you know yourself and everything in between. So fear not, Jesus says. You are of more value than the sparrows. Listen, fear not. You're of more value than you think you are. He knows you more intimately and values more highly than anybody that can speak on his behalf could. Anybody, including myself. He knows you more intimately. He values more than anybody that can speak on his behalf. So you can expect him to interact with you, your interior, what's hidden, and your exterior differently than those who speak on his behalf. Especially the Pharisees and the scribes, right? So Jesus says, Speak the same as the one showing you God. Speak the same way to God as I'm speaking to God. Speak to God through me on behalf of the one that's speaking to God for you. This is what Jesus says in um, Luke chapter 12, verses eight. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Everyone who interacts with me with others in community and before people in normal everyday life, I'll be the one who interacts with God on their behalf. Jesus is putting himself in the place of those he's deposed, right? So we don't look to leaders to show us God. Sure, people are gonna speak to God, but, we, but if we really wanna know God, if we really want access to God, we look to Jesus. That's what he's saying, right? Look to me. And then, listen, he says this, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be, what? Forgiven. 
Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That's a kind of incredible statement, right? Jesus just said, if you want to know God, if you want to speak to God, be in step with me. Know me. Speak to me. I'll show you who God is. But listen, if you disagree with me, if you wrestle with who I show God to be in the way I show God to, to, to live, if you wrestle with this reverse and upside down kingdom that we just um, um, uh, sing about, it's all right, you'll be forgiven. If you wrestle with it, if you struggle with it, if you're not in step with it initially right away, like it's all right, you're gonna be forgiven. It's normal. It's normal. Because listen, the way I'm talking about God, this is Jesus speaking, the way I'm talking about God, the way I'm showing God, who I'm showing God to be, how I'm showing God to interact with you is so vastly different than what you can think or imagine. It would be kind of strange if you didn't struggle with it a little bit, right? But he says, but the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, blaspheme, like we, we may kind of, in our day and age, we kind of hear that term as like a wrong theology, right? Like a bad theology, in the Greek terminology for it, it actually means the idea that, that you're, you reverse the morals. You reverse the morals of the Holy Spirit. So what's the morality of the Holy Spirit? What have we learned about who God is and how God's interacted through Jesus so far? Why did he get on to the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers? Because they didn't love neighbor and God. They loved themselves. They reversed the morality. They didn't keep, they didn't draw people into relationship with God. They kept people from relationship with God. So in other words, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that if you acknowledge me in agreement with me of who Jesus says and reveals God to be, you'll be good. Even if you end up speaking out of step with Jesus, even if you wrestle with his words, his person, and his actions, out of misunderstanding or ignorance, you're gonna be okay. All is gonna be forgiven. Just don't reverse the moral standards of God's life and spirit. Don't use power, position, and knowledge to keep people from true, full, and forever life. He won't put up with that. He won't put up with it. He'll put up with you wrestling with, man, I know Jesus shows God to be this way, and Jesus says to do this, but it's really hard for me to, to believe that. It's hard for me to understand that. It's hard for me to walk in step with that. He's not okay with you using the words of God, the power of God, what you've been given in Jesus to keep people from life, to use that to keep people out of your life, to use that as an excuse not to be invested in other people's life. The Good Samaritan, right? We just read that a couple chapters before. When we use God to keep ourselves away from people and to insulate our lives, we reverse the reversed kingdom right? And that he won't put up with, right? So it's okay to wrestle with the things that Jesus is about to say. In fact, he kind of invites it. You're going to be forgiven, so wrestle with it. Just don't reverse the morality of the Holy Spirit, which is a sacrificial, humble, loving of neighbor and a full, total loving of God. Once you reverse that, once you try to make God something you can use to keep your life isolated, keep your life sanctified from everything else rather than loving neighbor, being involved in sharing the loads, being about justice and love for God as we saw last week, then you missed it. Then you're outside of it. So Jesus says, speak of God in the way that I speak. Speak to God through me. 
Do so and everything in you will be revealed, but don't fear the revealing, you're loved. That's the context for our story today. That's, where, that's what allows us now to enter into this interaction. And the cool thing is in verse 13, which is where we'll start today, really start. Someone actually took Jesus at his word. Someone was bold enough in the crowd to take Jesus at his word and speak of God to God. And so in chapter 12, verse 13, someone from the crowd prays. This is what this is. It's a prayer. It sounds like a request. It sounds like a demand. Kind of depends on how you want to read it, but it's a prayer. It's one speaking to God through Jesus. Speaking to Jesus in order that they might speak to God. Let's read this prayer in verse 13. The person from the crowd says to Jesus, teacher. Now teacher is a personal term of respect and authority. And it recognizes, if not deity, at least the connection to deity. That somehow Jesus is one who mediates God to us. So it's not just a term of smart person. Like it's not just professor, right? This term teacher is like one who's like, you know God. You speak of God and you speak to God for me. So he's, he's kind of giving Jesus this, this authority, right? He's saying who Jesus is to him, right? He says, teacher, order or command my brother. It's not tell me, I don't know what your translation is. Um, it, some, some translation says tell my brother, but in the, in the Greek, it's order or command. In other words, like you have authority to, to make them do something. So I recognize you as one who speaks on God's behalf and speaks to God. And I recognize you as one who has authority to enact the will of God, right? So he's, he's, it's a pretty, pretty big prayer, right? Pretty big statement. Teacher, order or command my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The person praying asks the one in authority to act on his behalf to bring justice and assumably some sort of reconciliation in his life. A prayer that I'm sure most of us have prayed, right? Has there ever been anything in your life where you've asked God for justice? Lord, do this on my behalf. Do this for me. Bring some sort of reconciliation to a situation. Bring some sort of justice to a situation. Something that seems unfair, unright, unholy. Make it right and whole for me. It's a pretty common prayer, right? We've all prayed it in some sort of way. This is obviously something, there's something obviously wrong or broken in this person's familial and financial situation. His brother is either withholding a part of what is actually his, or there is something um, that, um, that has happened within the family structure to where um, the, 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 the brother isn't acting responsibly and maybe not doing it quick enough. Whatever it is, there's something kind of broken and wrong, and he wants God to make it right. And that broken and something that's broken and wrong in his familial and financial situation is impacting him. And so he wants his life to be whole and right too, right? So with boldness, the person prays for God's intervention through Jesus. God intervene. It's a really simple prayer, a really common prayer, right? But it's also pretty bold because he stands up in the midst of thousands of people and says, Jesus, you have the one that, you're one who speaks for God, and speaks to God, and you're one who has authority to enact God's will, so enact it on my behalf. It's pretty cool, pretty bold. Now, Jesus' response might surprise us in verse 14. Well, so tell, here, here's what Jesus says. In, he says um, to, the, to the man, or not to the man, yeah, he said to the man, human, the word man, literally, it's just the same word as Adam. It's human. 
human. Who made me a judge or divider over you? Now, that's not the, the response that we would, we would hope for, right? As ones who prayed and asked God to intervene on our behalf, right? Like, doesn't, does, does anybody else read that and kind of feel a little condemned? Like, is Jesus pushing back on this guy's boldness? Like, if you read it that way, that's normal, but it's not actually accurate. That's not the way it's read in the, in the original language. The way it's read in the original language is Jesus is asking and um, essentially affirming through question. This is a normal rabbinic like activity. This is how rabbis teach. Like they affirm through the question of saying that he's repeating back to the guy and saying, are you actually affirming me to be one who has the authority and the power to be judge and divider over you? So Jesus is affirming what's in the man's heart. He's seen what's inside the man in his question. He's, what was spoken in the dark is being seen in the light, right? This is what Jesus is doing. This is, this is how Jesus is interacting with them. This is, this is really common for Jesus. He'll actually do it again in a couple of chapters with the, with the rich ruler in, chapter, in Luke chapter 18, where the rich ruler comes to him and says, good teacher. And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And there's no interaction after that. He's not actually asking for an answer to the question. He is through his question, affirming the heart of the one who asked it. That indeed the rich ruler thought Jesus to be both in authority and good like God, in whose God is. He saw Jesus really well. And so this is what's happening in this context, right? Jesus sees what this man really believes. That, 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 Jesus, that this man really believes that Jesus does have a place of judgment and authority, a place to be the one who decides what's right and wrong over humanity, including him. It's pretty incredible, right? So the man speaks, he acknowledges Jesus before other, other humans. He acknowledges Jesus before men. And Jesus what? Acknowledges him back and acknowledges what his heart really is. And in such of a place of intimacy, where Jesus knows his heart, Jesus also knows not just what in his heart that is true and good, but also what in his heart that might be a little bit off. Again, because we're coming right out of the context of the Pharisees and the scribes whose words didn't always line up with their hearts, whose hearts were a little bit off, sometimes way off from what their words were. When we speak to God, sometimes we speak to God out of an ignorance of our own heart. That's kind of what's going to happen here. In verse 15, Jesus kind of shifts a little bit. And he shifts in order to, to reveal what's kind of underneath this request, underneath this affirmation. What's underneath his initial belief and in, in confirmation in who Jesus is, the prayer is, the person praying it has, but what's really underneath it. Verse 15, it says, And Jesus said to them, Notice that Jesus is no longer is talking to the man directly, he's talking to the crowd. The crowd of disciples, the crowd of Samaritans, presumably to some degree a few of the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers who are still around who are trying to figure Jesus out and trying to figure out ways to trap Jesus. But in doing so, Jesus kind of takes the immediate pressure off the person praying, right? Like this is a really gentle move. The man has exposed himself. He stood up before everybody and acclaimed, proclaimed Jesus. Jesus has affirmed him before everybody. But instead of kind of going at him in front of everybody, Jesus takes a step back and lets the man kind of hide back into the crowd a little bit. 
before he addresses the heart. Jesus says, take care to all of those. Take care and be on your guard against all greed or covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of, your translation probably says, possessions. But the idea here isn't possessions like we think of possessions. The idea of possessions here is what is in your hands literally, what is under your discretion. Remember, this is first century agricultural societies. It's the idea of a mass produced anything. It doesn't exist. So you don't have a lot of goods. But what you do have, you have, you have gained things at the expense of others. You've taken land, like it's your land, so it's not other people's land. You have a certain amount of sheep. There's a fixed economy. There's a fixed amount of goods, right? And so what Jesus is saying is what... What your life does not consist in what you control, what you have control over, what fixed amount of goods you've made your own. That's not what life consists in. So listen, Jesus reveals this man's heart to some degree, right? Like what, you, what this man asked for is justice and God to act justly. And he does so at it from a place where he believes Jesus can bring that. But when he's asking, there's something else going on in his heart. And Jesus reveals what's going on in his heart. He, but not from, for a desire to condemn, but a, a desire to set him on course, on the right course, to, to life where he really needs to be, to the abundance of Psalm 24 that we read earlier, to life in God's presence. But Jesus does so, again, indirectly, allowing the person praying the dignity of an intimate relationship. Instead of speaking directly to this person, which Jesus does, there's times when Jesus speaks directly to people in where their hearts are. He usually does it to one of two types of people. One, the ones who, who claim that they can, they can speak for God and to, uh, and to God for others, but do so out of a broken, twisted heart. The Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers. He directly calls their hearts out in places, right? The other time he speaks directly to people are his best friends, those who know him, and who know him well enough to know when he speaks directly to them, it's not condemnation, it's revelation. That he's, all, he's for them and completely with them. But this guy doesn't quite know Jesus that way yet, right? He's still kind of on the front end of his own interaction with Jesus. And so Jesus kindly expands the, expands the revelatory experience to everybody. And lets this man get to experience God in a place kind of more like this where he says to everybody, hey, listen, like everyone, let us all consider and be on guard against greed and covetousness of thinking that life comes from, consists of everything that we can control. Because listen, this is a fundamental issue of all humanity. This has been our struggle from the very beginning. So he allows the prayer, the person praying, to confess who Jesus is, to be acknowledged by Jesus that he does believe who Jesus is, that he knows Jesus rightly, but he also shows the man that he's a part of humanity and struggles with the same things that humanity struggles with. That even in his revelation, while it may be unique to him, his situation is not unique to humanity itself. So when you, when you recognize that you're broken, sometimes our tendency is to think we're the only ones broken. We're the only ones off. We're the only ones who don't get it right. Sometimes I think that we're so twisted when God reveals to us and we see ourselves as God sees us 
and our hearts kind of come into the light, what's hidden in the dark comes into the light, there's a lot of how wicked and gross and nasty am I? Maybe that's not you, but I know that's been my experience. But Jesus in his kindness, because this man doesn't know him as intimately as his friends will, maybe he will someday, that's his hope, I think, right? But because this is kind of new for him, he brings him out and says, listen, like what you're struggling with is a normal human struggle. It's a struggle, yes. It's a brokenness, yes. But this is the struggle of humanity to fight for control, to make life based on what you can control rather than live in the abundance that God has provided. Rather than be one who lives out of the abundance of what God has provided. And so Jesus dignifies this man. Rather than calling him out, he, gives, he shows him dignity. He shows him dignity, one, and that he didn't just immediately go directly at him, but invites him to be a part of the, the crowd, right? Allows him to kind of step back into the crowd. But then he also does, he also dignifies the man by not telling him a direct moral thing to get himself right. Like, there is no like, hey, you're wicked, so go do these things and make yourself pure. He doesn't tell him, hey, like, I know you want justice, but really, in the end, what you're after from your brother is like just your own selfishness. Like, you just want more. He doesn't speak those things directly to him. Rather, Jesus tells him a story. He tells them a story because in the story, the, the person listening will have to decide if they want to enter the story or not. They could just hear the story, not see himself in the story at all, and just be like, well, that was kind of weird, and just kind of move on. Or the story could hit him really directly, and really, he could recognize himself in the story right away, and the story would be really powerful and meaning, meaningful. Or, and this is what's more common, he hears the story, probably a little confused, but then over time, the story sinks in deeper and deeper and deeper. He finds himself in the story as he goes back over it over and over again in his mind until it finally comes to him slant. <laughs> shows itself, the brightness of the story shows itself a little bit at a time. And he becomes like the other disciples who fully see Jesus and can hear the direct conversation with Jesus in a way that isn't so for you and I, I'm going to tell the story. And for time's sake today, all I'm going to do is tell the story and make a few little comments. And hopefully the story today can maybe do one of those two things for us. It can either hit us right now. We can, we can be open to what the Spirit has to show us. Because again, Jesus invites the one who's prayed and asked God. And I know there's people in here this week who have prayed and asked God to interact on their behalf, to do justice, bring justice, to reconcile. I've prayed that prayer multiple times this week. And then to step back and let God say, okay, so let's guard ourselves against control. This is not where life consists of. And maybe the story today will hit home. Maybe there's something in the story today that will stand out. Or maybe it's just a story that we go back to in the rest of the week we chew on, we think on. And if we wrestle with it, we don't like it at first, it's okay. Jesus says it's all right to wrestle with him. Everything's gonna be forgiven if we mess it up. So do this for a minute. Let's pray this prayer. Quietly to yourself, or just give us a minute. Holy Spirit, draw me in. Let me see myself, my heart and my God in Jesus' parable.
pray that a couple times. As you're praying that, asking for the Spirit to draw you into the story. Ask the Spirit to draw you into the circumstances. Or maybe ask the Spirit to let you be one who is in the crowd, who's maybe curious about Jesus, but not, doesn't know him that well. So you're observing. Or maybe you're a disciple who knows Jesus really well, and so you're wondering where this is going. Or maybe you'll hear this story as the one who, with boldness and desperation, stood up and prayed. Just ask the Spirit to give you a place in the story as one of those. An observer, a disciple, the person praying. All right, now let's enter the story. As we enter the story, we're just gonna ask a few questions. This will just help us as we kind of go because we're not a first century Jews and so we might not see the story in the same way that they, they would have um, as clearly and as, as immediately. And so I'm just gonna try to give a little bit of commentary as we go, but not much. So verse 16, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man. Who is this man? He's a rich man. Jesus assumes, he assumes that the person who's praying, who's asked God for intervention on his behalf is rich. Already. This isn't just a landowner, it's a rich man. And listen, there's a, there's a reason for that, right? In the ancient world, especially in the first century, greed was a, was a vice of only the wealthy. The poor couldn't be greedy. They had no way to be greedy. They had no way to get more. There's a reason why Greek stories talk about Midas and the, 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 the man with the golden touch, right? It was his greed, his avarice that, that caused all the problems. He already had a kingdom. He already had gold. He already had all those things he wanted, but he only wanted more of those things, more things in his control. So greed was something that came out of an abundance already, a place of wealth. He assumes, Jesus assumes in telling this story, the person who identifies as this, the person in the story is somebody who's already wealthy. We'll come back to that. That's important to note. Who is the person, the main character of the story is a rich person, a person already wealthy in something. And so what is this per, rich person's dilemma? Verse 16, it says, the land of the rich person produced plentifully, abundantly. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. What is the problem? The problem is an abundance of provision, an abundance of the land producing more than it normally did. And listen, it normally produced pretty good because he's a rich man. So that means his barns were already set up for good produce. He was already set up to produce at a healthy way all that was needed for his lifestyle and his life abundantly. But this crop uncontrolled by the man himself because he can't control how much his crop produces, right? It produces abundantly, extravagantly, more than even a rich man is able to do with. And so his dilemma is, what do I do with it? 
What do I do with all this more that I have? Are there anything, anything else that he could have done? This is where there would have been a pause in the story. What would you have done? What would we have done? What would those listening have done? Could the rich man have sold the abundance, the extra on top of everything that he already planned to get and taken it to market and use the resources and ways to benefit the land and the yield that came from the land to, to keep the land sustained and going? Because that's really the source of his richness and wealth, right? Could he have put it back into the thing that, that he had to make it last longer and be stronger, all those kind of things? For the flourishing and health? Or maybe he could have been generous to the needy. Maybe this is where our mind goes all the time, right? He could have been generous to the needy in the community and given out of his abundance. Not even just given out of his normal richness, but out of his abundance of richness, right? That seems normal, right? He's got so much more than a rich, than a rich man has. Why wouldn't he give some away? Or maybe he could have blessed his children, his family, his workers, in the overflow of the prosperity. He could have shared all those who labored with him for this, in this, he could have shared with them. But he chooses to do something else. Verse 18. And the man said, I will do this. So he's decided. In between verse 17 and 18, there's something that happens. There's, uh, there's, there's this thought process that goes through his mind and his heart, the inner workings, right? This is the inside part, right? That Jesus said he's going to reveal in the darkness, the thing happening in the dark. And all this happens in between verse 17 and 18. And then verse 18, it comes to light. Here's what he decides. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. Listen, there's nothing unethical about what this man does. It's selfish, but it's not unethical. He, he, he was the landowner. It was his land. It was his barns. He could technically do with it what he wanted to do with it and what it pleases him. But his decision reveals something. It indicates that he doesn't see how life really works. He is not enlightened about how God really works. The farmer's decision demonstrates that he is willing to go to great efforts to tear down the good barns that hold the rich amount of, of abund normal abundance on his property. Tear down the good barns, the sufficient barns of a prosperous farm. He's willing to go to great efforts to that, to build new ones, to keep what allows him to be in control of his present and future to make sure that he will never be needy again. He thinks his issue is being needy. That's what he thinks. Having to be dependent year upon year, even in the prosperity of being dependent year upon year of crops. Now I won't ever have to be needy again. I mean, listen to what he says in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, my very being, the very depth of myself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What did you think his real problem was? It was being needy. And so it wasn't that he, his problem, he didn't see this problem as, as having too much. <laughs> he saw his problem as being needy and wanted to solve that problem. I never want to be needy again. I never want to be dependent upon, upon the weather again. Listen, there's nothing unwise about farmers having barns and storing grain and goods. It's actually pretty wise, right? My father-in-law is a farmer. This is what he does. Thousands of acres. Like, he, he doesn't 
give away all of it and sell all of it. He keeps a portion to be able to seed the land the next year, to be able to use for, the, for cows and all these different things. He's got a whole system that works. Because you know there's going to be lean years, and there's going to be full years, there's going to be years with rain, and years without rain, all that kind of stuff. This isn't a condemnation of that. This is a man who says, I don't want to be dependent upon that anymore. I'm done being dependent and needy. So what did he miss? What did he miss and why? The farmer's free to choose and do with the abundance of wealth what he wants. But what he wants, what his heart decides in the dark, the same heart that cries out for what is good, misses something. He misses the reality of grace. The reality that all of life is lived in the neediness and provision of God. Everything. We wake up into the goodness and graciousness of God. If we wake and have breath, it's because God is good and gracious. And it's true. But listen, he's not just true for like survival. Like he's experienced it in prosperity. He's a rich man. And here's the paradox of this grace that we wake up into every day. Grace that, that it literally gives us a full life every single day we wake up. Is that once we try to take grace that we've experienced, once we try to take control of it and control of life, we lose it. Once we try to take control of, the, of life, we actually lose it. When we think we're in control because of the grace we have experienced and no longer are in need, that's when we discover how much we've actually always been in need of God's grace. What does verse 20 say? At that very moment, God said to him, it's the moment where he decides, not the moment where it's done, but the moment he decides that what life consists of is him having more control and not being dependent upon the grace of daily provision, of rain, of family members, of hard labor and work, all the ways in which grace comes through in the normal, ordinary ways of life. A man, again, who's not poor and striving for things, but who's been rich and prosperous in grace. When he decides that he wants to control life, it's that moment when God says up and says, fool. Again, remember last week, this is a proverbial term. It's a term that comes from Proverbs. It's a term that says, you don't know anything about God. You got it completely wrong about God and life. This night, your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The things that you've worked so hard for to control life, somebody else is gonna get those because that's how it really works. You never had it in the first place. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, Jesus says. So is the one who tries to, to, to take control of his life, lays up treasure so that he can control life and is not, listen to these words, rich toward God. Rich toward God is an indication. It's a, it's a Greek idea here, like, or in the Greek, the idea here is that it's an entrance into God's purpose in union with God. You're not rich in the kingdom of God. You're not rich in relationship to God. When you try to control your life, this is what happens. You end up losing it. Rather than being one who's rich because he's in life with God. 
in union with God, in deep relationship with God. When we live for self, so self that might be secure, we miss out on the security of life in God. Listen, Jesus encouraged us to consider what life actually consists in, right? That was what he told us in verse 15. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of what has his hands on, what he can control. But rather, what does life consist in? It consists in the grace of God and being needy for it. Remember what Jesus said back at the very beginning of the series when we kind of went through a quick little intro into Luke and all that kind of stuff? He says in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are in need and needy. Listen, there's a difference between being needy and greedy, right? A needy thing may have a negative context in our, in our connotation, in our day and age, right? But really what it means is it just means you can't provide for yourself. You need someone else to provide. And God provides richly. And sometimes even more richly and abundantly to those that already have. That's the place that we need to be. Neediness puts us in a place of relational dependence. A place to ask for daily bread, like we were taught. A place where we ask for bread for the sake of others, as we were taught. And such a place is a good place. A place that we long to be, as the psalmist said when we started today. And in case we miss it, Jesus reiterates to his disciples. Because listen, our tendency is to hear this story and then to go wonder, what all am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with this? Listen, Jesus' disciples would have wondered the same thing. And so he ends on these words, and this is how we'll end as well. Jesus continued the subject with his disciples, verse 22. Don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or if the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There's far more to your inner life than the food you put in your stomach and more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Listen, Jesus knows we're gonna hear this story and we're automatically gonna think material goods. <laughs> this is a material thing and not a heart thing. That we're gonna, we're gonna hear this story and maybe at first the wrestle is gonna be, but I don't, I don't have a lot of things. I don't feel like I'm after a ton of things. That I don't wanna give up things that I need things to survive. He just knows that. But he also doesn't want us to sit in that. So he tries to help us, his disciples, wrestle through it. He says, listen, there's much more to your inner life and your outer life than the things that you put into the body through food and the things that you wear on your body. There's more to you than just the things that you're after. Look at the ravens, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, carefree in the care of God. That's where he wants you to be. And you count far more than them. Has anyone by fussing before the mirror ever gotten taller by so as much as an inch? If fussing can't get you that, then why fuss at all? It has been anxious and, and begging and asking for more and more and more actually gotten you more and more and more? Has struggling after more and more and more control gotten you more and more and more control? I mean, has that ever been true? Have you ever had control of life? Well, then why try to control it all? Instead, walk into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They don't fuss with their appearance. 
But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the wildflowers, most of them never seen by anyone, no Instagram accounts. Don't you think he'll attend to you? Don't you think God will take pride in you? Don't you think God will do his best for you? I mean, if it's true that the birds in my backyard never worry about where they're going to eat because they always have things to eat. If the flowers that grow along the side of the road, who most of us pass as 70 to 90 miles an hour, depending on who's driving, are known by God, loved by God, made beautiful by God, how much more will God take pride in me? How much more does God love me? How much more will God attend to me, whom he said he loved so much that he'd die for? So here's what Jesus is trying to say. What I'm trying to say to get you to relax, don't not to be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. Listen, life's not about what we get. It's about what God's given and how we respond to it. People who don't know God and the way God works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works, right? Because this is what Jesus is doing. He's deposed those who said, I'll show you how God works and how you get in on it. He said, no, I'm the one you look to to know who, how God works and how to get in on it. So don't fuss over this stuff. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. You'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father delights to give you the very kingdom itself, the very thing that you're after. He delights to do it. He doesn't keep it from you. He delights to give it to you. So be generous because you're rich, because you're abundant in richness. Give to the poor. Get yourself a bank account that can't go bankrupt, a bank in heaven far from bank robbers, safe from embezzlers, a bank you can bank on. Listen, if you're afraid of losing control, well, put yourself in the control of the one that can never get you lost. You can never be stolen from. You can't be removed from his hand, as Paul would say. That place is the place you want to be. Isn't it obvious? The place where your treasure is, the place that you set your heart upon, is the place where you want to be most. It's the place you end up being. So, do you want to be in control? Or do you want to be in God's grace and kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you know us so well. The things that are spoken 2,000 years ago to a person who was bold enough to pray and acknowledge Jesus before others Speak to us today. So I'll pray just even now in this moment, as we go from here, as we go into a week ahead, Father Lord, that you will let the words of Jesus not just sink down into our hearts, but be a light unto our path. That we might know ourselves 
both the truth that we believe Jesus to be who he says he is and the truth that at times our heart is still after lesser things. And there would be ones who live carefree in God's care. We're generous because we live in a land of abundant grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You're welcome to stand as we continue together in song.